Beloved, for those of you who may not know me, I am your interim pastor for leadership, Mike Sherritt. And if you are worshiping with us today for the first or second time on behalf of our congregation, I offer the warmest and most sincerest of welcomes to you, and particularly those of you who are joining us through the online service. So good to be together. Today is our next installment in this series this fall called Begging Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, you've run into many, many incidents where individuals are falling before Jesus, pleading, begging, entreating him for something. Today's text is Mark 10, verses 46 to 52. And there's a fairly robust outline in the bulletin if that would help you follow along. And they came to Jericho. And as he, Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. During my brief time serving on the faculty at the University of Virginia many, many years ago, I was having a conversation, a personal meeting with a fellow faculty member. Best as I recall, I was fairly exuberantly sharing with her my love for Jesus. She interrupted me. Mike, you're taking this all much too seriously. Well, how seriously should you take your faith in Jesus? Depends on how desperate you are. When you woke up this morning, for what were you desperate? What would you pursue today with undeterred determination? Here's a story, beloved, illustrating for us what some desperate people are like and how they overcome obstacles with undeterred determination. His name is Bartimaeus. He's blind. He's a beggar. And he sits by the road all day long, dust covering him, filling his lungs, getting in his eyes. Perhaps this is a picture 
of how difficult it is to come to faith in Jesus. His existence is beyond destitute. So I want to examine in this vignette three potential obstacles to coming to faith in Jesus, to a robust pursuit of Jesus. If you consider yourself today a seeker, perhaps this will help you. If you consider yourself someone who sought Jesus for 40 years, perhaps this will help you. Overcoming obstacles to pursuing Jesus with undeterred determination. First obstacle, expectations of who Jesus is. It appears that Mark is drawing a contrast. If you go back about 10 verses in chapter 10, Mark seems to be drawing a contrast between two of the apostles, James and John, and Bartimaeus. Look at chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one on your right hand, one on your left, in your glory. Did you notice how that vignette and the one we just read are linked by the same question? Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if Jesus appeared to you and said, what do you want me to do to you, for you? Your answer would depend at least on what? Your sense of need or desire at the moment and your expectation of who Jesus is and what he could do for you. So how do the apostles see Jesus? Well, they're asking to sit on his throne and reign with Jesus. They see Jesus as great. They want to reign with Jesus. They want to enter into Jesus' greatness. We want to sit on your throne with you. It seems to be that they're saying, we want your power. We want place in your kingdom. There may be some legitimacy to the request, strange as it looks on the surface, because in verse 33, Jesus has just predicted his death See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Giving James and John the benefit of the doubt, they may be saying, since you're going to die and be gone, perhaps we need to take your place in leadership. They're, they're pleading Make us powerful. And you notice there's a ripple effect in the community of the apostles. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they became indignant. How does Jesus respond to their request? How does Jesus want to be seen? You tell me. Listen to verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them, but it's not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. How does Jesus want to be seen? 
as servant. He is saying to you and to his disciples, if you want to be great, you must know me and my identity as servant. Become as I am, servant of all. Not like the Gentiles. How do they do leadership? They have to have power. They have to have their way. Arrogance. Get significance by bossing people around. Jesus says, not so among you. True greatness is servanthood. Just look at me. Verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus actually puts the concept of servanthood on steroids. We're called to serve those who can't give anything back to us. Jesus, in giving his life a ransom for many, was actually serving his enemies, taking the wrath his enemies deserved in his body on the cross. So I'll ask you, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Make you great? Or cause you to know Jesus and his greatness? Cause you by a spirit to come under the King of Kings, the love of the Prince of Glory. Come under the reign of the Prince of Peace. Quick sidebar. Jesus may choose to make you great in your field. He may choose to promote you in wonderful ways, whether your field is athletics, academics, the arts, government, business, education. Jesus may choose to make you great, and we should do all that we do with excellence. If he chooses to make you great, please handle that greatness with humility and make sure you surround your heart with others who will remind you this gift has come from God. It is to be used for God's glory. God is the one giving you the very life, the very breath, the ability to be great. Oh, friends, if he makes you great, do surround yourself with those who understand all things come from his hand. They'll help you keep, keep you humble. All right, back on track. Who are we contrasting? James and John, they want to know Jesus and his greatness. They want Jesus to make them great. And Bartimaeus, what does Bartimaeus want? Mercy! Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Somehow he has found out that Jesus is the Messiah promised in Isaiah 61 who would come to do for the destitute what they can't do for themselves. Here's an interesting twist on this. I don't know if this happened, but it is possible that someone who was in the sermon in Nazareth when Jesus first preached, it's recorded, recorded in Luke 4, someone in that sermon was there and got word to Bartimaeus that this happened. When they handed Jesus the scroll for the sermon, he read from Isaiah 61. But yet when he read from Isaiah 61, Jesus inserted something into the text. Here's what we read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And here's what Jesus inserts that isn't in Isaiah 61. And the recovery of sight to the blind. Maybe, just maybe, 
Word came down from Nazareth. We're way down here in Jericho, way far away. Maybe he heard that this is the Jesus who could do that. We don't know. But he, he knows Jesus has the power to heal him. Irony. The disciples can see Jesus physically. They don't yet get him spiritually. Bartimaeus cannot see Jesus physically, but he gets Jesus spiritually. Okay, let's go to the second obstacle. We're answering the question from this text. What obstacles prohibit, inhibit, undeterred pursuit of Jesus? Whether you're just examining Jesus for the first time or you wake up tomorrow and you've been a believer in Jesus for 40 years. First obstacle, expectations of who Jesus is. You see the difference between Bartimaeus and the apostles. Secondly, the voices in the crowd. The text asks you to imagine a big crowd of people coming up from Jericho, dust kicked up in the air, probably Jesus' disciples in, in the inner circle right around Jesus, and in all likelihood, Jesus is teaching. Bartimaeus can hear the commotion. I don't know if he can feel the ground shaking or what. He can heal the commotion. He realizes this is Jesus of Nazareth, the healer. So what does he do? He does exactly what you would have done. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does some in the crowd do? Exactly what I would have done. Shut up. I'm hanging on the prophets. Every word, you're causing a commotion. Please be quiet. I want to hear what Jesus is teaching. <laughs> and Bartimaeus pulls a Bob Dylan. When you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. <laughs> he keeps crying out. Undeterred determination that his cry reaches the ears of the healer. I love his tenacious seeking of Jesus. Some of you have experienced that in your life. And if you were honest, you would say it has waned. Let's talk about that. I'm going to identify, based on my pastoral experience, two main causes, there could be others, for why your once undeterred pursuit of Jesus now feels foreign to your experience. One, one is this. You, you, you had this passion in your life, and it's gone. And, and there may be reasons why. You had a bad experience with the church. You had a bad experience with a church leader. You had family difficulties. Your dad went to church. He looked all upright at church, and he came home, and he did terrible things in your home. You lost something very precious to you. Or you feared God was going to call you to the mission field, and you were going to live in a place that you absolutely loathed. So gripped with fear, you choose another thing to be zealous about. Another possibility, beloved, are the current voices screaming at you, seeking to silence your desire to pursue Jesus with undeterred determination, such as a secular culture, the voices of unbelief, 
the voices of Hollywood, some of the sitcoms I watch, often mock Christians and belittle faith in God. There's the voice of Satan. God hates you. God is mean. There's the own trouble of our own conscience. I'll never be good enough. I'm not worthy. I'll only be loved by God when I really start acting perfectly. Or peer pressure. You went to college. You found some really new found friends on the dorm. Just wonderful people. They can't believe you're a follower of Jesus. You're crazy. Voices all around you in the culture. May I encourage you, if you are in one of those, you struggle with one of those two categories, pursue the way out of those. Find someone that has walked with Jesus for a long time and share the burden. Process it. Talk about it. Don't let those voices, wherever they're coming from, immobilize you. It's such a bad place to live. It's such a miserable place to be. We need, like Bartimaeus, to keep crying out. And then the third obstacle. We're looking at obstacles that stand in the way of a determined pursuit of Jesus, whether for the first time in your life or after following for a long time. Third obstacle, spiritual blindness. It's worth asking, and Kelly went over this last week in his wonderful sermon on Jesus, the bread of life. How do the miracles function in our understanding Jesus? They actually do at a number of different levels. The healings. First of all, they show us compassion. When Jesus sees a life that is falling apart and broken, it moves him. He can't help but make it right. He hates that sin has ruined and hurt human beings. It shows us compassion. Secondly, it shows that Jesus identifies with the poor and the outcast. He himself, dirt poor. He virtually had nothing to his name. Outcast? Jesus experienced the ultimate alienation, the ultimate outcast on the cross, cut off from his own father with whom he had enjoyed fellowship for all eternity. So when Jesus sees the outcast, his heart is moved out of his own experience. The miracles also anticipate the time when we will enjoy glorified bodies forever, never subject to sin, death, sickness, sorrow, whatever. So when Jesus heals a body, it's pointing forward to the time when all the bodies will be raised and those who know Jesus will live in indestructible, perfect bodies forever. And then these miracles of healing point to the different ways that we are sick spiritually. In other words, to what sin does to us. So when he heals the cripple, it's telling you that sin keeps you from walking with God. When he raises the dead, it tells you that sin leaves us spiritually dead. When he sets demons free from people oppressed by the demon, he tells you that, that, that sin brings you under the domain of the prince of darkness. 
When Jesus cleanses the leper, it shows you that sin pollutes the soul. And when Jesus heals the blind, it tells you that sin has this wretched, blinding effect on our ability to make sense of ourselves, our world, God, everything of ultimate importance. In fact, there's a, just listen to this graphic way the Apostle Paul puts the blinding effect of sin in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is the most sad, the most devastating, the worst thing that could be said about a human being, to be blind to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, but that would be me, but for His grace. Just a quick sidebar, what would you be like if you gazed on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Some of you know it has produced in you a zeal for his kingdom. It has produced in you gratitude you never experienced. It has produced in you humility that you would never know otherwise. It has produced in you a prayerfulness, a concern for the nations. It produces, has produced things in you that you never would have dreamt of because you've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And mark this, beloved, when you do, Seeing Jesus in his word, all of the scriptures, experiencing his love through a community of a church like this, when you do, your heart's cry will be nothing less than this. Nothing I desire compares with you. I often sing, you know that little song? How many of you know that little song, Nothing I Desire? Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, Does anybody know it besides me? Hands up. Yeah. Okay, so I'm basically singing that every day in my devotions because it's true. I also sing it as a confession. Lord, I desire things more than I desire you. When we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, nothing I desire compares with you. So as we conclude, notice how Bartimaeus is this beautiful paradigm, pattern, for either coming to Jesus for the first time, today's the day, or coming to Jesus tomorrow morning for the umpteenth time you followed him for four decades. Here's the pattern. Bartimaeus sees his need. Yeah, I'm blind. I'm really needy. The Holy Spirit makes you aware of the fact that your sin has blinded you to your pride. Your sin has blinded you to the glory of God. Your sin has blinded you to what it means to be human. Your sin has blinded you to what you've done to other people around you. You become aware of your need, and I can't cleanse myself of that. I have a profound need to be delivered from myself, from my own blindness. He's aware of his need. What's the next thing he does? He cries for mercy. It's all you can do with aware of this need. Don't hold this against me. Don't hold this against me. Have mercy. You sing it every Sunday in this church. Have mercy. This is a church about mercy. We planted a church in Lynchburg, and the name of it is Mercy Presbyterian. <laughs> because if we never wanted the people to get away from the, the need for mercy. You see your need. You cry for mercy, and then you see Jesus. So you're Bartimaeus. 
they say, get up, he's calling you. All the same people that were saying, shut up, come on, he's calling you. You change your tune in a hurry. They bring you to Jesus. <laughs> yeah, they want to have a conversation with him afterwards. And he opens his eyes. What do you think is the first thing he sees? Jesus. Beloved, a Holy Spirit wrought cry for mercy will open the eyes of your heart to Jesus as the only hope for sinners. And as Jesse reminded us a few minutes ago, Jesus loves to answer the cry, forgive me, have mercy on me, cleanse me, make me righteous. When we see Jesus, we ask Jesus, see, where is he going in this pilgrimage? He's going to the cross. And it is there that Jesus purchases through his own unspeakable suffering mercy to make you right with him. Notice Jesus says, he says to the man, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. How do you personally get in on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in objective history? How do you get in on that? You believe the word of promise. Jesus said to the man, you're going to see. He believed it. He had sight. Jesus says, I'll forgive you. I'll love you. I'll make you right with my Father. Faith believes the promise. Last thing, right? He sees his need. He cries for mercy. He sees Jesus. And then what does he do? It's verse 52. Immediately, he recovered his sight and went back to work. Immediately, he covered his sight and went to the gym. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. When the Spirit opens the eyes of your heart to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the power of his cross as your hope for life, forgiveness, cleansing, mercy, you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus. He joins the company of people longing to hear what Jesus is saying, longing to see Jesus. We just had a class this morning of people that are interested in joining this family of God's people because they want to follow Jesus with other like-minded people. And I'll bet somewhere along that conversation, he stopped somebody and said, you need to know what this man did for me. I was blind. Now I see. You too can have sight through this Jesus. Yeah, let's, let's pray to that end. Oh, Jesus, sight giver, healer, lover of our souls, fountain of mercy, Jesus, you have come to do for us on the cross what we can never do for ourselves, put away sin. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You never fail to answer the cry of the heart that says, have mercy on me, Jesus. So give us sight. Open the eyes of our hearts to see more and more the glory of who you are and to follow you and to arrest us out of sloth, out of discouragement, out of failure, out of thinking we somehow could do this. Oh, Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with the love of Jesus that we would want him more and more and more. Amen.